Stephen and Harley, thank you for being with us. It's been, uh, it was good to meet Harley last night and to see Stephen again. I'm thankful for just the vision that you guys have, and it's a reminder for all of us to take the passions that the Lord's given you and to use those as a way to engage the culture around you, baseball and youth, but also understanding that what the people needed more than a baseball team was a church. And uh, I just love the vision of how the Lord's used your baseball background to plant a church in Neuenberg. Uh, thank you for being with us. I want to invite you to join me in Colossians chapter 2. We will be this morning looking to verses 6 through 15. Uh, this is a, a continual building on where we've been uh, so far in, uh, in Colossians. The message builds and we see that as the, as the text opens up with this telltale word, therefore. It reminds us that, that what Paul's been teaching us so far is going to be the foundation for the message that he has today. Uh, therefore, as you have received Christ. Now, what does it mean to receive Christ? To receive Christ is not merely to hear a message and so say to yourself, well, I think that makes sense. It is much deeper than that. Um, to receive Christ is to have Christ take over your life. An occupation that he graciously takes on himself. Is he takes over our lives, uh, the, receiving Christ is to receive Christ in me. It's not Jesus, our buddy, but Jesus, our essence. And so, as we see in this first verse, as you have received Christ, walk in Him. And we're going we're gonna to go uh, sort of verse by verse through this text. It may seem a bit teachy. I want to try and explain. There's a lot that, that Paul is writing for us here as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're going to go verse by verse. So have the, have the text before you. We'll, we'll unpack it as we go, but throughout we'll see that he is pointing us to this, this glorious, beautiful truth of our union in Christ. Let me, let me pray for us as we explore this text. Father, as we come to this passage, I ask that you would, you would grant us understanding. An understanding that would be impactful, that would be transformational, that would show us uh, the beautiful truth that Christ is in us, but would also challenge us to walk in that fact. Would you do this by the power of your Spirit this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to start simply reading verses 6 through 8 to get us uh, introduced to this text. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. 
I've come uh, to find pleasure in the simple act of going for a walk. Sometimes it's me and Lucy. (laughs) Sometimes Anna and I will go for a walk and it's a time for us to be together, to talk. Sometimes I go on walks with my friend Bob. Bob Wessel and I will go on walks and it's a time for us to to be together, to, to talk, to enjoy friendship. It's a time when he and I will do some planning in terms of the elder and deacon relationships and, and what we're called to do. So sometimes uh, Bob will call me and say, hey James, you want to come go for a walk with me? Sometimes I'll call Bob. Hey Bob, you want to go for a walk with me? But never, ever have I called him and said, hey Bob, will you come walk in me? be kind of weird, wouldn't it? What would it mean? It would certainly mean something different than walking with. And maybe we understand that when we consider it with another person. But Jesus is telling us something far different from come walk with me. In this text, he's telling us come walk in me. It's a curious phrase. Walk in him. But what does it mean? Well, fortunately, the text tells us what it means. Uh, We see in these first couple of verses that that I've read a series of, of admonitions of what it means to walk in him, both positively and negatively. So let's look at the positive admonitions that would be in the latter half of verse 6 and then in verse 7. It's a series of four simple, short phrases that, that begin to open up for us what it is to positively walk in Him. Uh, the first is this, rooted in Him. To walk in Him is to, is to be rooted in Him. Do you ever do any gardening? I know some of you do. I've had the blessing of enjoying some of the vegetables from your garden. Or maybe you, your version of gardening is planting flowers. When, when you garden, sometimes you, you sow seed. You put seed in the ground. But on occasion, you'll take a plant already grown. You'll uproot it and implant it, roots and all, into the ground. And the thing is, when those roots are planted in the ground, they serve sort of a dual purpose. They provide stability for that plant against the elements. The wind doesn't blow the plant away because the roots give it that stability, but it also, the roots also provide the means for the plant to receive nourishment from the soil. Now, after planting that plant in the ground, the action of rooting has taken place, but as you move forward, that plant still receives the benefit, the blessing of its rooting as it continues to receive that stability and that nourishment, the same is true for us as we are rooted in Him. 
It's an action that took place in the past, but we continue to receive that benefit and blessing of stability and nourishment as we're rooted in Christ. That's the first thing that Paul tells us as we are to walk in Him. It's to be or remain rooted in Him. But he goes on and the next three, I'm going to translate just a little bit to capture the fact that what he's actually telling us to do is something that is in the present tense. So, be or continue being built up in Him. Paul's giving us a bit of a mixed metaphor here as he's often uh, doing. Uh, in rooting, there was a, a sense of agriculture, but in being built up, he's, he's moving to construction. And he's saying, be built up in Christ. Have you driven by the property lately? I know some of you have. Some of you send me texts as you go by because there's just this excitement of what went on today. If you drive by this week, you'll see that they've been laying the brick. And when we go day by day, we see this construction process continuing as the, be- the building is being built up, something new added each day because the construction process is ongoing and it's not finished. It won't be finished until that glorious building is presented to us. Guess what? If in Christ you are being built up, just like that building, day by day, a new course of brick being added, the roof being prepared, we are being built up in Christ-likeness. Continue being built up in Him. That's what Paul tells us. It means to actively walk in Him. Next. Established in the faith. Being. Continue being established in the faith. The faith here is is reference to truth. That, That soil that the plants are planted in needs to be rich, nutrient filled soil. Truth-filled soil. Continue being established in the truth of Jesus Christ. And that truth is part of what will brace us against the winds of culture of empty deceit, as we'll see in just a moment. So walk in Him by continuing to be established in His truth. And finally, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding or overflowing and thanksgiving, isn't it beautiful that as Paul tells us what it means to walk in Him, he tells us that one of the ways that we walk in Him is to enjoy Him? Sadly, how often do we lose that? To walk in Him is to enjoy Christ. To continue enjoying Christ, not just a little bit, but overflowing with joy in Christ That's what it means to continue walking in Him. That's the positive that Paul lays out for us in the latter portion of verse 6 and then verse 7. But in verse 8, there's a negative admonition that tells us what not to do so that we would continue walking in Him. It's verse 8, and we've seen as we've been in Colossians that Colossians 2 verse 8 seems to offer for us a bit of the, the warning that, that, 
that covers all of the teaching in Colossians. It tells us what some of this false teaching is that the church in Colossae is dealing with. And some of that false teaching comes from the teachers themselves. Some of it just comes from the influence of culture. Verse 8 is this giant warning sign on the path. As we walk with Jesus along the path, there is a warning sign in verse 8. And that warning is to walk in Jesus by watching out for empty deceit. This empty deceit that verse 8 tells us about is, is philosophy, human philosophy. That oftentimes in the, the history of philosophy, uh, what we find is, is philosophers trying to make sense of life, trying to make sense of the world apart from God. It doesn't work. It's empty. It's, it's baseless. It is a weak argument in the face of real truth. It's not real, but it is well-aimed. It's well aimed and that is what makes it dangerous. This, this empty deceit that is according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, that, that means that it is inspired by the elemental spirits, the, the forces of evil. But having been inspired by the demonic forces, it is then communicated through worldly voices. Sometimes those voices are teachers. Sometimes those voices are simply the culture around us. And they may not be true, but they are very convincing. They are tempting. They are even alluring. Think about the sexual ethic proclaimed in this world that makes this beautiful gift from the Lord a very me-centered physical pleasure-focused activity that is defined by my own desires. The signs along the path, they, they warn of this empty deceit. And they warn us to avoid being taken captive. The, the word translated here as, as taking you captive would, would be used... Uh, in the context of a ship who's, that's had its cargo plundered. Maybe the picture on that sign is one of a pirate. But the pirate would be dressed in fashionable attire. Avoid the piracy of empty deceit. Don't allow your faith to be hijacked what is our protection against this plundering? Well, the text goes on to tell us that the protection that we have against the plundering of, of empty deceit is the truth of our weighty union in Christ. I, I'll go on to read verses 9 and 10. For in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. 
I'll just make a brief point here. But it's an important point for us. The substanceless claims of empty deceit, they float away on the breeze like a dandelion puff in the spring when they're measured against the weightiness of Christ and the weightiness of Christ in us. So by contrast with those empty, the empty deceit of, of human worldly philosophy, feel the weightiness of these verses. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity, of God, dwells bodily. All His glory, all His truth, all His substance, all His weight. Now, <laughs> the passage didn't stop there. It didn't stop with, in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It goes on to say, and you, if in Christ, have been filled in Him. And Christ is the weight of God. And in us is Christ. The weight of Christ in you is your protection against the lightness, the emptiness of this deceit. So just practically, let's think about it this way. Have you ever felt ill-equipped when you are confronted with a good arguer? (laughs) Wants to challenge your faith? Maybe some of our students know this. Maybe some of us remember it from when we were students. If we find ourselves with other classmates or even even an, uh, an ill-motivated professor whose greatest desire is to hijack your faith. What do you do when you find yourself challenged by a good arguer? Well, one option is to come up with an answer. For every single one of his challenges. Every one. That is one option. Second option. Rather than trusting in your knowledge to answer every single challenge. Is to know the weight of Christ in you. To know who you are in Christ. To be rooted in him. So that your knowledge of who you are. In Christ, the weight of Christ in you is the protection that you need against these challenges. Now, this doesn't mean that you're to check your brain at the door. (laughs) It doesn't mean that you are to abandon reason or to stop trying to grow in understanding. But ultimately, our greatest protection against the lightness of human reason is the weight of Christ in me. Know who you are in Christ. So in Christ we, we walk in a weighty union. But the text goes on to tell us that we walk in a victorious union. I'll, I'll finish the text reading verses 11 through 15. Read along with me. In Him... Again, in Jesus, in Him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, 
who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. First of all, can we just rejoice for a moment that the gospel is foundational? Can we just rejoice that biblically the gospel is not a one and done proclamation that we hear and then set aside so that we can get on to the practical living section of the scripture? No. Do you see how the Bible continues to weave the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout its practical living section? Praise the Lord. For that, that we see what it means to walk in Him is to know the gospel. To know who we are in Christ by His grace. Christ in me is the foundation for practical living. And I'll just briefly lay out for you three quick points from these verses that all point to our union in Christ, showing us how we are united to Christ, and who we are united to Christ. First point in verses 11 and 12 is that we have victory through regeneration or victory through new birth. This, this mention of circumcision and baptism, it, it sounds a little confusing at first. What, why in the world is Paul reaching back to the Old Testament, to Genesis, to circumcision? Didn't he write a whole letter against circumcision in Galatians? Well, yeah, but he's, interestingly, talking about circumcision and baptism together. What are we to make of that? Well, first of all, circumcision and baptism are both the signs and seals of the covenant of grace and our participation in it. They are the sacraments, if you will, of marking those who are part of that covenant community in the old and in the new. So the discussion of them together shows some continuity between the old and the new but more importantly Paul is pointing us to a deeper truth he's pointing us to the circumcision not made by hands that is the circumcision of the heart a circumcision that is affected by Christ, a circumcision that points us to our union in Christ. This mention of circumcision and baptism together is ultimately pointing us to regeneration or to new birth. And in this new birth, what I, what I want you to see and understand this morning is, is that with that new birth, with our regeneration, at least two things happen. There is a transformation and there is a transfer. The transformation is this, that, that in our new birth, there's a change of essence. What, what was a heart dominated by the flesh and by sin, whose, whose primary focus, whose only desire was for self, in, in whatever way that manifested itself, 
That was the old heart that Paul describes as being dead in your trespasses and sins. But a, but a transformation takes place with the new heart. We're no longer marked by the flesh and sin, but we receive the heart of Jesus. It's a transformation that takes place place and continues to develop as we are built up in Christ but more than merely a transformation there is a transfer that takes place as there is a change in alliance the old self there's a heart set on the flesh has an alliance with Adam in his sin and in his punishment But as we are born again into Christ, a transfer takes place where we are transferred from our alliance with Adam to our alliance with Christ. Our citizenship is now in the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. What a victorious union it is that we walk in. And so just almost as a parenthetical aside, think about your alliance Is it with the kingdom of this world? How many challenges have we had to our citizenship this past week? Regardless of what side of the political aisle you sit on, there's been a temptation to find our citizenship in the kingdom of this world. But by God's grace, He has transferred us and our citizenship into the kingdom of heaven. Walk in it! There's a victory through new birth. But then in verses 13 and 14, we see a victory through death. Through union in Christ's death, we are now made alive in Him. But understand that though though the resurrection colors everything we read in the New Testament, Paul's focus here is the fact that our union in His death brings forgiveness. Verse 14 speaks of Uh, the record of debt that stood with its legal demands. Did you know that if you buy a house and you borrow money to buy that house, if um, if you sign that paperwork, the mortgage is actually a legal document that is recorded at the courthouse describing what you owe. Describing the debt that must be satisfied. And if you do not satisfy that debt, they'll come take your house. Your mortgage is is a legal record of debt. What the text is telling us is that our sin compiles a legal record before God Almighty. But Jesus Christ has taken that mortgage and He has nailed it to the cross. And at the top of that legal document are words written in red for all the world to see, paid in full. That's what Jesus did when He died on the cross because That record of debt that is piled up against us must be satisfied. And the satisfaction for that record of debt does not come in the form of monthly principal and interest. 
This is never a debt that we could pay, either systematically or at one time. It required a qualified substitute. And praise the Lord, Jesus stepped forward and said, I, I will take the punishment. When he, when he nailed that mortgage statement to the cross, that is what he did. He took on the wrath of God for us. And as we are united in him, we are united in his death. He died our death and we died with him. There is no more punishment to be paid. It's paid in full through our union in Christ. We have this victory. Walk in it as you walk in Him. But then in verse 15, He goes on to say that we in Christ have victory over the elemental spirits of this world. The demonic forces who inspire substanceless claims. It's all empty deceit. They have been disarmed. They have been defeated. Jesus did a victory dance over them. You see, if you're in Christ, if you are in Christ, those elemental spirits, they have no power to accuse you before the throne of God. They can only harass. They can try to shame. They can try to steal away. And the whole flow of this passage is reminding us that because we are in Christ, we should not let them. They don't have the power. We have victory in Christ over them and so fight them. That is the whole thrust of this text. And so that takes us back to the call to walk in Him. Again, how do we do this? Well, We don't allow ourselves to be deceived. We remain rooted. We live heavy, weighty lives with the hope of glory, with our eyes fixed on the glory of Christ. And we do this actively. That's why Paul uses this language of walking in Him. There is an activeness to walking. Be always walking in Him. That's the It's the call of this text. And it's rooted in the victory that we have in Christ. But understand, no matter how much we know and embrace this victory, the messages of deceit, they're well aimed. And all of us must recognize them and fight them. So the, the question I put before you is where, where are you susceptible to attack? Maybe the way that you can personalize that for yourself. Maybe the way that you can think about it is this. What is weighty in your life? What is weighty in your life? Where are you placing weight in your life? This week as we, were, uh, as we were planning worship and we were talking through this text, Michael uh, shared a, a little illustration with me that I want to share with you. He talked about when you live in an old house, which we do, uh, the floor is not always level. 
Sometimes there are uh, waves in the floor. Sometimes it just leans to one side. And the thing that you realize, uh, particularly when you have kids in the house, as Michael has younger kids than I do, though there have certainly been times when we dropped balls all over the house. When you drop something on that floor, it rolls somewhere. It's going to roll to the lowest place in the house. How do you find where you've placed weight in your life? How do you find what is the most weighty in your life? Well, when you lose your marbles, where do they roll? We've all got a place where they roll. Where is that for you? When the marbles spill all over the floor, they're going to roll somewhere. And that place oftentimes is the sign of our misplaced weightiness. Look, the examples abound. And I'm not going to try and speak to every single issue or illustration. So for just a moment, can I speak to the singles? Can I speak to the younger people in the room? And I suspect that every one of us can relate to what I'm about to say. Where have you placed your weightiness? Could it be in the attraction and allure of the opposite sex? Could it be in your desire for the opposite sex? Could it be in your desire to be attractive and alluring to the opposite sex? Could it be in your need for that girlfriend or boyfriend and could you be placing an inordinate amount of weight in that desire I'm not talking about an appreciation for beauty I'm talking about idolatry have you made that desire or that desire to be desired the most weighty thing in your life you feel it don't you You feel that desire and where it takes you, the despair it builds within you. And so what do you do with it? Well, first you recognize it. First we just have to be honest about what it is. And and then recognizing it, we confess it. God's not surprised. He, He, in fact, invites us into this discussion. Confess it. Confess that in that moment you have made that person or that desire to be desired more important to you than Jesus. That in that moment you've given it more weight in your life than Christ in you. So recognize, confess, and that's repentance. But repentance is not merely putting words to it. Repentance is turning away from it. Repentance is allowing yourself to be re-rooted in Christ. It is to recenter your gravity. It is to refocus on the beauty of the gospel and to celebrate its truth by abounding in thanksgiving. People, young, old, single, married, allow yourself to be rerouted, to refine your center of gravity in Christ. 
That is how you walk in Him actively. By walking in His steps. By loving what He loves. But there's one more thing. You see, walking in Him is it's more, than, it's more than following Him. Though it is definitely that. When, when Bob and I go for walks, we walk side by side. But I guess, I suppose, we could walk single file. And if we did, I might be following Bob's steps, but the truth is I would be doing it in my own strength. Yet to walk in Jesus is not merely to walk in His steps, it is to walk in His power. So what does that look like to walk in His power? It means to free ourselves of the weight and burden of outcome. He'll take care of that. He'll take care of the outcome. So what is for ours is to to trust that He'll provide and to simply walk. And when we give up the, the need to produce the outcome then, then we can enjoy the journey. Then we can enjoy Christ. Friends, as you walk in Christ, as you walk in His power, allow Jesus to be the weighty one in your life and do so by letting him take the lesser weights on himself and as he does walk in him let us pray father this is this is your word for all of us I pray that you would imprint these truths deep in our heart that we might know the joy of walking in Christ and that we might actually do it. For your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.